people don't keep the same job their entire career, right? Yeah. They change, um, they change uh, career pretty, pretty often. And so, you know, people need to learn the, the basic skills that will allow them to, uh, to learn. So it's learning to learn. It's not learning things, it's learning to learn, really, that becomes more important than anything else. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Delve, a podcast from McGill University's Des Hotel Faculty of Management, where we'll hear from management researchers and practitioners as they explore the latest ecological, social, and economic challenges that we face as a society. I'm your host, Mo O'Keefe, and today we'll tackle a question that seems to be on everyone's mind. Is AI coming for your job? The introduction of new technologies has transformed job markets for centuries, and today history repeats itself as artificial intelligence, machine learning, and autonomous technologies are changing jobs and shifting the ground beneath jobs that were once stable. Who better to help us understand the repercussions of the fourth industrial revolution than Yan LeCun, director of AI research at Facebook and silver professor and founding director of the Center for Data Science at New York University. In discussion with Matissa Hollister, an assistant professor of organizational behavior at McGill University who specializes in the changing nature of work and the labor market. They'll help us get a handle on the evolution of AI technology how it's applied in the context of jobs, and how workers can prepare for the future. So I want to start by thanking you for coming and thanking all of you in the audience for uh, attending this very interesting event. Uh, so as already mentioned, I've been studying the changing nature of careers and the employer-employee relationship over the last four decades, and a lot of my work has focused on documenting the shift from long-term jobs where there was an expectation that you would work mostly with one employer and look for internal promotions to the shift to shorter-term work and expectation of careers that would span multiple employers. Um, this may seem like an obvious trend for you, but actually when you look at government uh, labor force statistics, both in the U.S. and Canada, it's proven to be actually quite difficult to find evidence of this trend in the past, and there's many other researchers who have previously concluded that there's not much happening here. And so this move towards short-term work is relevant for today's topic in two ways. One is that... Um, technological change is uh, likely a cause of the shift towards short-term work. Uh, more rapid technological change means that skills become obsolete faster, and so there's less of an incentive for employers and potentially even employees to develop and maintain a long-term employment relationship. Um, the second part, though, is that I don't think that technological change is the sole reason for the shift to short-term work. Other factors include the rise of global competition, the increasing power of shareholders, which tend to focus more on short-term profits, the declining power of unions. And this has led to uh, an increasing view of workers as a cost that needs to be minimized. And so my second connection to this talk is I worry a little bit about the context in which AI is being developed and implemented and how this might impact these trends. Could you describe, hopefully in as little technical language as possible, uh, what is deep learning and how is it different from previous evolutions of AI? So machine learning, of course, was there at the beginning of the appearance of AI. People have been working on AI since the 50s, and, or, or the, the phrase was coined in the, in the 50s. And, and very early on, people realized learning was uh, probably going to be an, an important component of, uh, of artificial intelligence. But there's been several waves of, um, 
of interest in machine learning techniques. The, the first wave was uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, and it kind of died out uh, for, for a number of years, and then reappeared in the 80s, and then died out again, and now it's reappearing under the, the name of, of deep learning. Um, so what, what deep learning is, the reason it's called deep, is, uh, is, be, is by contrast with previous machine learning techniques that you know, we could call shallow, but that would be unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, the traditional machine learning techniques uh, do relatively simple computation. Uh, so instead of programming a machine directly by writing a sequence of, uh, of instructions, like in traditional um, uh, programming, you, you, you write a relatively short program which has lots of parameters that are adjustable, and then you train the machine to find the setting of the parameters that will get the machine to do what you want. And so a typical example is that you want to train a machine to recognize speech or recognize uh, objects in images. You collect lots of images of, say, cars and airplanes, and you show an image of a car to the machine. You wait for it to produce an answer. And if the answer is different from, from car, then you tell it, you got the wrong answer. Here is the correct answer. And it adjusts the internal parameters so that next time you show the same image, the answer will be closer to the one you want. Um, so uh, in the past, the, the part of the machine that was able to uh, train this way was relatively simple. And much of the work had to be done uh, through engineering by constructing a, a, a way for the machine to represent the images, for example, in in such a way that the learning algorithm could actually do something with it. Um, And that required a lot of manual intervention, a lot of uh, uh, skills and sort of engineering. And then deep learning, what deep learning is, is basically a way to automate this part. So instead of having a piece of the system that is handcrafted and a piece that's trained, the entire system is trained. And it's called deep because the, you can sort of conceptually see the system as being composed of multiple layers of processing. So the image is fed at one end, and then it gets processed by sort of these multiple layers, and then at the end it produces an output. And all those layers are trained from end to end simultaneously. That's why it's called deep learning. Um, the, what, what this technique has brought to the table is the, uh, over the last um, five years or so, even though the, the, the basic techniques are very old, they, they are 30 years old or 25 years old, uh, but over the last five years, because of the uh, increase in the power of computers and be, because of the availability of large data sets on which to train those systems, we've seen an in- incredible improvement in the performance of image recognition systems, video analysis systems, speech recognition uh, systems, and uh, text understanding systems, text tr- uh, translation, language translation systems. So all of those systems now deployed by all the big companies use deep learning. When you talk to your phone, uh, and the phone kind of recognizes your, 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 your query or your search query if you're on Google or, or, or whatever, it's a deep learning system that understands your speech. Uh, when uh, a post from one of your friends uh, who's, you know, is posting in a foreign language you don't understand is posted on Facebook and that is translated automatically in the language you understand. That's also done by a deep learning system. Uh, all the work on self-driving cars that you hear about, uh, there's a lot of companies that are very excited about the, the possibility of having autonomous cars. Uh, that all uses deep learning. Um, and, and we're going to see a lot more applications of this in the near future. And so one of the differences from really very other different approaches to artificial intelligence in terms of machine learning as a more general principle is that uh, you're not telling the machine this is what a 
car looks like. You're telling the machine, here's a bunch of data, and you figure out the pattern uh, that defines what a car is, and it's learning. That's what it means by it's learning, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, and then the deep learning is just allowing that learning to be much more complex than before. Yeah, basically to feed the machine directly with uh, the raw image. And one thing you wanted to comment on was that uh, you think that uh, these machines are not necessarily advanced, as advanced right now as people think. Right. So it's very easy to get a little confused when, uh, when a, a machine does a particular feat at a level that is above human performance. Like, you know, those systems can do, uh, you know, they can, you train them to recognize images and they can recognize, you know, obscure species of plants from the shape of the, of, of the, of the leaves or they can recognize, you know, breeds of dogs or, or species of birds, right? And most people can't do this. I mean, some people who train themselves to do this can. So it's, uh, the, the, the scenario by which you, you, know, you show an image or a text to a machine and then you tell it what the correct answer is. So it's a little bit like, like showing a, a picture book to a, to a small child and you know, here's an elephant and you say it's an elephant. And after a few example, the examples of that, the, 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 the child kind of recognizes the concept, right? So it's like this, except we need thousands of examples of each of the, each of the categories uh, for in, in most cases. Um, there is the, most of the learning that humans and animals do is, is not of this type. We, we learn most of what we know about the world by just observing or by interacting with uh, objects. And, uh, and that kind of learning, we don't quite know how to do yet. We, we have some ideas. We, all of us are working very actively on trying to find ways to make this work, but it doesn't quite work. And until we find ways to do this, we're not going to have truly intelligent machines. Um, um, and, you know, it's a necessary condition to make uh, significant progress towards uh, general intelligence, but it's not, it's not a sufficient, sufficient one either. So we don't know what the next obstacle will be after that. So it might take a quite a long time before we have truly intelligent machines. Um, so you've already mentioned uh, a few applications of artificial intelligence. So at the moment, artificial intelligence is mostly being used in deep learning to learn a very specific and narrow task, as we just discussed. So what are the common characteristics of those tasks that, that, uh, that at the moment, deep learning is good at learning? What do you, what are the, what do you need uh, for that task in order to be able to train AI to do it and potentially do it better? So the thing that, for which those techniques work well are, are you know, anything that uh, a human can learn to do in less than, I mean, can learn to do in a long time, but then can perform in less than half a second or so. So okay. things that don't require a lot of thinking and reasoning and, and kind of uh, mulling over. So the, you know, perceptual tasks are of this type. If you, uh, if you, if you look at a scene, uh, neuroscientists tell us that you can pretty much tell which objects are in your visual, you know, visual field uh, in less than 100 milliseconds, about you know, a tenth of a second or so. So any task that uh, animals and humans can do relatively quickly like this, uh, those, those things are, are, are pretty good for. What that translates into is, is tasks uh, that, for which you can collect thousands or millions of examples, and, and that those examples have been labeled by humans. So you know what output uh, is, is, is required to correspond to particular inputs. And how about um, what jobs, what might characterize the kinds of tasks that are very unlikely to be learned by artificial intelligence anytime in the near future? Okay, um, so you have to put horizons, and it's very difficult because, as yeah. I said before, you know, we might make some progress towards general intelligence, and in my opinion, that will take uh, you know, a few decades. Um, so, we, so we have some time, but... Um, but before that, before that happens, so with the techniques that 
we currently uh, know about, and there are you know extensions that that will occur in the next few years. Um, uh, the, 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 the type of task, I think, that can be automated are the ones for which we have lots of data, et cetera, for which yeah. there is an obvious mapping from input to output. So there is sort of an easy decision to make that doesn't require a lot of uh, thinking, but maybe that requires to take into account a lot of different variables. Uh, then those, those systems can actually uh, do a better job than, than humans. And they, they would be more consistent about the decisions yeah. they make. Yeah. Uh, they won't get tired. Uh, so for driving a car, for example, if we can, drive, if we, if we can build systems of this type, they can drive cars, um, you know, accidents due to inattention, for example, would be reduced uh, yeah. by, uh, by a lot. So that, that would be an uh, opportunity to save lives with, uh, with AI. Similarly, for uh, a, a very promising set of applications of uh, image recognition techniques, commercial nets in particular, is for medical image analysis. And uh, so I, I think, you know, in the near future, there's going to be automated system that can um, essentially process a lot of... Uh, uh, medical images and sort of eliminate the simple cases and then send the, the more sort of tricky ones or difficult right. ones uh, or suspicious ones to, the, to the, the radiologists and the doctors who then will be able to concentrate on the difficult cases. Ultimately, I think what those systems are going to be used for are, uh, uh, are sort of assisting creation. So there's going to be... What it will do is that when you have a system that can... Uh, uh, you know, turn a, a, a rough line drawing into a painting in a particular style, and we already have technology like this, it would just allow a lot more people to be, to, to be creators. I think, I think this, this is going to be an effect of amplifying human creativity. And I think human creativity and human-to-human -human communication is what is going to become more valuable. And um, so I wanted to discuss one example because I've been looking into it myself personally, which is using uh, the, the use that some companies are even doing now of, of what's called artificial intelligence to evaluate resumes and to recommend the best mm -hmm. job candidate. And um, what do you think about that application? Yeah, so there's a number of applications that uh, a number of companies, large and small, have uh, wanted to apply to... Um, I mean, I wanted to use uh, machine learning techniques for. They're not necessarily deep learning techniques, by the way. Yeah. A lot of them use very simple machine learning techniques that were around 20 years ago. Okay. Um, and the, the problem with this is how to make sure that the decisions are uh, unbiased, perhaps less biased than the human decisions that are, right. that are, that are uh, otherwise made. Uh, and also, those systems generally are decision aids, so they don't actually make the decision. They produce outputs that are then interpreted by humans to make the decisions. And so these are situations where you want the system to actually produce explanations. Mm -hmm. uh, so any decision about people's lives, like, you know, uh, do I job. offer you a job? Yeah. Do I uh, give you a mortgage? Uh, do I, you know, I'm a judge? Do I let you go on bail? Um, those are things that affect uh, people's lives. That's, you know, situations for which you want uh, uh, explanations yeah. uh, out of the system. And so the you know, there's, there's been um, uh, talks about the fact that uh, neural nets and deep learning are, 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 are sort of difficult uh, um, objects from which to generate explanations. I, I, I don't think that's the case. They're not, uh, 
They are more difficult than more than simpler techniques. It's just right. more difficult because they produce more more accurate answers, basically. But one of the dangers of the deep learning, depending upon the application, is that it's it's trained on real world real world data, and therefore um, one has to be very cautious about the data that it's being trained on. Right. So yep. it's not going to be better than a human. It's going to reflect whatever those human decisions that it's trained on is trained to. So if you use past hiring data to um, train your algorithm for hiring, then that data will reflect any biases that were in the humans, reflected in the humans that created that data in the first place. And so eventually, I think we discussed it, it might be possible to try and fix some of that. But at right. least at the moment, uh, at its most basic level, it's, it's learning the real world at its best and its worst at the same time. Well, so there, there's sort of two remarks on this. The first yeah. one is, uh, you, you certainly you can actually get machines that are better than any individual person right. who who has generated the data because the data generally is is produced by an ensemble of, of people and right. there is wisdom of the crowd to some yeah. extent right mm -hmm. so individual variations are kind of smoothed out when you have uh, a large data uh, data set that, you know from from multiple people mm -hmm. um, uh, so that's one point. The second point is there are techniques that people are working on. I wouldn't say they are completely kind of uh, uh, you know, recipes that everybody can apply, but there are there is quite a lot of work on trying to sort of debias data, in a way that if, uh, if there are certain variables that you don't want to be you don't want to use you don't want your system to use not only that but you don't want the system to use other variables that are correlated with it. Uh, there are techniques that try to remove the information about those variables from the systems, and so in the end you might get a system that is less biased than any human actually doing the same task. So, I mean, I'm very hopeful that uh, there's going to be uh, methods and sort of good uh, techniques to uh, uh, build systems of this type that actually are considerably less biased than corresponding human uh, decisions. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I am interested also in the context in which AI is being implemented. And there's two aspects to that. One aspect is that it does seem like a lot of AI research is being funded and conducted uh, inside private companies, including your employer, Facebook. And uh, is this, should this be a concern? Does that influence the, the kinds of applications that companies, uh, that AI is being put to use for? So first of all, I, I should say that uh, it's true that uh, some companies have invested massively in, in AI research, yeah. uh, but still the majority of good ideas come from academia. Nice. Uh, <laughs> many of them from, from here, from Montreal, right. from uh, Yosha Benjo's lab. Yeah. He's sitting yeah. right here from, from Mila. Um, and uh, the, 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 an interesting phenomenon has, ha has occurred in the last few years, which is that most companies that are involved in AI research actually practice open research. So it's certainly the case at Facebook where uh, all the work that is done at Facebook AI Research uh, is published, and most of the code is uh, distributed in open source. And the reason we're doing this is because we want to, we don't think AI is a solved problem, of course, and it's gonna take the entire research community to, to make significant progress. And that had kind of ripples, ripple effects in other companies. So uh, Google became more open than they were in the past. Um, Apple even started publishing papers, which they had never done before. Uh, so it's, it's producing a bit of a cultural uh, change in, in the attitude towards, uh, towards research. So after the upstream research has been done, and you publish papers, and you invent a new technique, you compare it on public data set, and you show that it works well, then it goes into product development. 
And that part is generally not, not uh, published, and it's you know, trained on internal data and everything, right. but, but the basic ideas are, are all published. So looking more specifically within the, the context in which AI is often implemented within a company, there's a paper that I often have my students read that was written by one of my former advisors and looked at the implementation of a technology that it turns out actually you were uh, part of developing, which was check scanning software in banks. And um, in that paper, they had an interesting contrast where they looked at two different departments where the technology was introduced. And in one department, the, they what had been a job where one, one position did four different tasks. The computer replaced one of those tasks, and the result was that they actually broke up the rest of the tasks into individual tasks, and that ended up with some pretty unappealing jobs. Uh, one of the jobs was literally taking out the staples and ordering the checks in the order to give the computer. Uh, another job was just typing in the, the numbers that the computer couldn't read. Um, interestingly, in contrast, the, the other department they consulted with the workers ahead of time. They actually had more specialized jobs looking at different types of exceptions to check problems. And in consultation with the workers, they actually did the opposite. They combined several tasks together. They um, created more, more complex, more interesting jobs and actually the, used the computer to take away the most frustrating and annoying part of their job. Um, and so the, the takeaway from that, and it actually emerges quite a few times in social science research on technology, is that... Um, the technology itself is not a determinant of how it impacts work, that how it's implemented and how it's developed uh, beforehand and put into place within the company makes a, a big difference as well. Yeah, so I think what, what happens in the situation, so I think the situation you're referring uh, to with uh, check reading, uh, Yosha Venture and I in the early 90s were involved in the, uh, at AT&T Bell Labs in developing a check reading system, and this was deployed widely by a company called NCR, which at the time was a subsidiary of AT&T. And, uh, by the late 90s, um, we were not connected with our project anymore because the company had split up, but uh, by the late 90s, the, the system that we, uh, we developed was reading on the order of 20% of all the checks in the U.S. And what it was doing was, essentially, it was a, a large machine that you put a stack of checks and it would kind of read the checks extremely quickly, uh, several thousand per minute, and, uh, and it would accept to read about half of the checks. So half of the check would be automatically read and, uh, and never seen by, uh, by humans within this bank. And then the other half would be sent to the to people you were peers. talking about. Yeah. So if, you know, I felt a little bad because you know, that's you know, half of the people being out of job. But in fact, no, they weren't out of job. But what happened is that this entire process kind of lowered the cost of, of processing for the banks and the employees ended up doing other tasks that were actually probably less frustrating than you know, sitting at a screen reading checks all day. How often is that the practice that an AI researcher says, I have an idea of a task, I'm going to go and actually meet the people doing that task and sit down with them and talk to them about what they like and don't like about their job and how can I make it better? Is that a common practice or is it usually an AI researcher says, I know how I can, how I can do a task and they go ahead and do it and they don't really think about the worker? Okay, so I think it's pretty rare for or, uh, sort of an AI scientist uh, in academia to do this, yeah. but, but it's not rare for people who actually want to deploy uh, uh, AI technologies in the real world. Okay. So, you know, there's kind of a whole chain of, uh, right. of research and development, right, where the, the basic research might have been done 20 years ago and then, you know, it only became practical in the last few years, which is what happened with, uh, with deep learning. Uh, and there's, you know, still a lot of kind of theoretical research and, and, and basic research on this. But then there is... Uh, a whole lot of people who want to apply this technology to various things, and they, they have to talk to the, the, the users of that technology right. to figure out how to best uh, 
uh, kind of build it so that it actually serves a purpose? Um, so as we discussed, I'm very interested in careers and um, I, to make this somewhat personal, I know you have three sons, and so I'd be interested to know what kind of career advice you've given your sons in terms of, since you know, have a, probably a better sense of what's coming in the future than other people do, what, how have you advised your sons in terms of being successful? One of them uh, uh, studied law, is yeah. a lawyer, um, second one is a mathematician, and the third one is uh, actually majored in economics and uh, mm-hmm. also studied com- uh, computer science and data science. Uh, you know, and again, this was before a bit of, uh, of what, you know, what, all the events that, that occurred recently about, uh, about AI. I think what, what I would recommend uh, people is to learn things that have a long shelf life. So, uh, uh, and, and sort of specialized, not specialized, but sort of uh, things that make you unique. So if you have a particular combination of skills that don't exist uh, very often, if you uh, learn things that have a long shelf life, like, for example, mathematics and physics, you know, that's not going to change very much. Uh, and you would think that because computers are good at computation, you know, scientists would be useless, but that's not the case, at least not for a very long time. Uh, so, you know, we might talk again in 30 or 40 years, and things might be different if we figure out how to build more intelligent machines. But I think, ultimately, there will still be, uh, you know, AI systems will be, uh, out of service, there will be an amplification of intelligence and not a replacement. Uh, the, the same way our, you know, the, the complex part of our neural cortex is actually subservient to our reptilian brain. That's interesting. And to do, how important do you think it is that everybody becomes sort of technologically literate? Is that going to be an important skill in the future? Well, it's already the case, right? I mean, we, we are considerably, everyone in this room, uh, everyone in the world is considerably more uh, technology is sophisticated than the average person, you know, 30 years ago or 50 years ago or let alone 100 years ago. So that goes with the time. But do we need to know, does everyone need to learn how to code? So in the sense that learning to code is another way of sort of reducing a complex uh, uh, problem to a simple set of instruction, which is sort of a very basic uh, uh, skill that people need to have. You know, it, we, we used to say, right, uh, in sort of classical education, European education in the mid-20th century, you had to learn Latin. Um, why? I mean, it's not clear. Or you even had to learn math, even if, you know, ultimately your I mean, math basically has replaced Latin you know, right. for that purpose, but it's, you know, basically to sort of build your, your mind, right, and know how to think. And uh, coding is one of those things that uh, make you... Uh, uh, think about how you reduce a complex problem into simple operations and things like this. So it's not like everybody has to be a programmer or a computer scientist, but the, the basic skill of, uh, that is required for coding, I think, is a very good skill to have, yes. Um, so thinking about how we should prepare for the future, um, Let's start with educational institutions, since mm-hmm. we're both from them. How, how do you see educational institutions as uh, potentially needing to adapt and change uh, with technology and AI in mind in the future? So the, the first thing, perhaps, is that the, the technological progress is accelerating. Yeah. And, it's, and, and educational institutions are known for, for their conservatism. <laughs> And the, the slow change. I'm shocked by that statement. Shocked. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure everyone here is shocked as well. Uh, so I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for uh, academia to keep up with the technological transitions. And you see certain schools, um, 
you know, the transition, for example, the, the, the success, the recent success of, of AI and deep learning, uh, some of the more conservative schools actually completely missed the boat on this. Institutions will have to find ways to, to, to combat uh, excessive conservatism in that, in that respect. Uh, but also, I think, concentrate on uh, not necessarily teaching students what is useful right now, but what could be useful for their entire career. People don't keep the same job their entire career, right? Yeah. They change, um, they change uh, career pretty, pretty often. And so, you know, people need to learn the, the basic skills that will allow them to, uh, to learn. So it's learning to learn. It's not learning things. It's learning to learn, really, that becomes more important than anything else. Yeah. And then finally, uh, what do you think uh, government or society more broadly, what can people be thinking about or should be thinking about now to ensure sort of the, the more positive rather than the more dystopian future? <laughs> um, so, again, I have, to, I have to say I'm not an economist and I'm certainly not a politician, but uh, I think it's more of a political question than a technical question. So clearly the progress of, of technology is... Uh, seems to be causing an uh, increase in wealth and income inequality. And uh, governments will have to find ways to uh, correct for that. And you know, it's, al- it's already happening. It's not due to AI. AI has nothing special in that respect. I mean, people think there is some qualitative difference uh, about AI that will make it uh, even uh, you know, qualitatively different from other technological progress. I don't actually believe so. I think, I think it's... Uh, it's sort of the same phenomenon that we observe, you know, uh, in all of technology. So, you know, going back to the first industrial revolution, uh, when um, um, you know most of the population in North America and Europe was working in the fields, and you know, 60 years later or 100 years later, it's two percent. And you know, those those transformations occur. It's not that the number of jobs uh, decreases. You know, new jobs are created at uh, this. A lot of people today, you know, work on jobs that didn't exist ten years ago. So, um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about the fact that sort of job, jobs will be taken away by, by robots. That's not the issue. Um, uh, someone said, I think we're we're not going to run out of jobs until we run out of problems. <laughs> uh, which I think it's you know, interesting uh, remark. That was Yan Lacoon and Matissa Hollister talking about AI technology and the future of jobs for the Delve podcast. This episode is adapted from an integrated management symposium hosted by the Marcel Dizotel Institute for Integrated Management at McGill. If you enjoyed this podcast and want more insights, you can subscribe on your podcast app of choice or visit us at mcgill.ca slash delve.